right, good morning. Welcome to our gym Bible study. We continue in the Gospel of Luke. Um, I got them out a little late, so you may not have seen them, but I do have a handout. If you do prefer to have a handout, you can write on. If not, uh, there are certainly Bibles over there. If you brought your own Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 23. Uh, and I think I'm just a little loud. Could I? Yeah. Oh, wait, up more? Okay, we're good. All right. Um, I should say also a special welcome to those listening locally on AM850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. Um, I think it's actually kind of a unique challenge today because we get the account in Luke that is probably the most widely known single event in the Gospels. We get the crucifixion and the resurrection. And anytime you have a passage that is so familiar, passages that are so familiar, and it, um, it creates a little bit of a challenge because we've heard these before, right? I mean, all of us, at least I think everyone in this room has been to a Good Friday service, Easter Sunday, right? Um, we're not going to be like, oh, I've never heard of that before. And so it creates a little bit of a challenge, because what happens when you're so familiar with something? This can be outside of just studying the scriptures. What happens when, you, when you're so familiar with just a particular thing? Yeah, it just goes right over your head. Sometimes your eyes glaze over. It's why if you've ever got a speeding ticket on a familiar road, it's probably because not because you're necessarily intending to break the speed limit, but you've driven it how many times you end up just going a little bit faster because you're comfortable. It's familiar. You, you know it. Uh, not that that's ever happened to me. I can ask. Um, but, you know, it, it's one of the unique challenges when you read a passage that is so familiar is that you almost need to set aside all the preconceived notions you're bringing to it and just stay focused on this text in this moment. And that's a challenge, I mean, on Easter, that's a challenge on Christmas, that's a challenge uh, on Good Friday. Uh, I would say even for us who are uh, very happily called Lutherans, it could be a challenge on something like Reformation Day where we, we kind of know what it's going to be about, right? And so today we have a Bible study on something you kind of know what it, it's going to be about, but I'd ask you to maybe uh, come at it with a, with a blank slate, if you can, as best you can. Come out of the blank slate, and we, as we dive into the text, see how Luke not only um, describes and depicts the crucifixion, but then, of course, we cannot talk about the crucifixion of Jesus without talking about the glorious resurrection uh, and, and the joy and, and the hope that that brings. And so we begin in Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now this is a little abnormal. I'm going to stop right there in that ordinarily, ordinarily, the condemned individual, the one sentenced to crucifixion, had to carry their own cross. Right? And Luke doesn't give us any particular details right here. And that's why I want to say, let's, we come at this with a blank slate. He does not necessarily give us any details as to why Simon of Cyrene was impressed into this. However, what has Jesus just experienced? Torture. I mean, let, let, there's not really a better name for it. Torture. If, you, if you've seen uh, the Passion of the Christ, you understand what flogging is. We, we read that word, and we, you know, it, it doesn't really sound that bad, and we certainly don't experience that necessarily in our day-to-day -day life, but when you see what that actually entailed, oof, that torture is about the only word that is even remotely close to being uh, appropriate. Yeah. So he is, he, he's in rough shape at this point. Now, a couple quick notes on Simon of Cyrene. We don't know a ton about him. He's mentioned here, um, so he, he, he's 
gets that kind of name recognition. Why is that name recognition important? Well, there's been all sorts of speculation. But one thing that I think um, is worthwhile to just consider is that in the Gospel of Mark, it's mentioned that uh, he is the father of Rufus. Now, why? I don't remember Rufus. That's because there's only one other time where Rufus appears, and that's in the list of names Paul includes to, to greet in Romans 16. Is it the same Rufus? Is Simon maybe one of the, the founders eventually of a church in Rome? Maybe, and I know that's so unsatisfactory, right? You want it to, we want to be able to connect all the dots, perhaps. And, and it's certainly more likely, um, it, it, you know, that it, it'd be a strong possibility for someone who witnessed this, as we see with the centurion, as we see with the, the thief on the cross, or as we're going to see, that perhaps um, Simon was called into the faith. Perhaps he'd already been a disciple. And so there have been all sorts of inferences that maybe that Rufus that, that Paul mentions in Romans 16, that is the son of, of Simon of Cyrene. Also, uh, the area of Cyrene is just modern-day Libya. So if you're, trying to, if you're someone who likes maps and are trying to figure out geographically where is Cyrene, we're talking northern Africa in what is modern-day Libya. Libya. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, you're going to see something really interesting happen here in the Gospel of Luke. When you think about uh, the idea of uh, Jesus having either words of judgment or words of promise, and you probably have already known this, you may have not thought of it this way, who receives the words of promise in Luke's narrative? And who receives the words of judgment or a word of judgment? Okay, so the words of promise, Dave, you're exactly right. The thief, and I know I'm supposed to be carrying this mic around, so we'll get there, we won't get to the questions, but I still have some questions for you, and I'll repeat it so there's not too much dead time. The thief on the cross hears the words of promise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Who else hears words of promise in Luke's gospel? Uniquely in Luke's gospel. Yes, the soldiers, those who are crucifying him, hear the words of promise. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Now here's why I said this is interesting. You may have never thought of it like this. Who receives the words of judgment? His followers or the women who are there mourning and lamenting him. And Jesus says to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, this is reminiscent. If you've been in this class now for a, a few weeks or the last month or so, not too long ago, you had a very similar sentiment. If you turn back in your Bibles to Luke uh, 21, if you go back to Luke 21, Jesus foretells of not only the judgment coming upon uh, Jerusalem, but also we have the parable of that, that fig tree there. But I want to read just one more time, and you can see how similar what he foretells in Luke 21 is to what he foretells in Luke 23. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. Let those in Judea flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. 
Here once more, we, we see a very similar um, statement made by Jesus, a word of judgment foretelling the, the coming destruction, not only of Jerusalem, but also uh, it's a foretelling ultimately of what the world experiences when he returns. You think back to the Old Testament, what is the day of the Lord? The day is ire, the day of judgment, day of wrath, day of weeping and mourning is that day. The great and awesome day of the Lord, it, it, that word awesome is literally terrifying, right? And for those who are in their sin, confronted with the majesty of the Lord, that judgment should be terrifying. And we're going to see how the world approaches their own sin and, and the judgment of God in the, th- the two th- criminals on the cross. Uh, and I highlight that because uh, in Luke's gospel, they're criminals, not necessarily robbers or bandits. Um, here, it, it's more of a general criminal. Still not great guys, right? But those two criminals on the cross, you see how the world approaches the, the judgment of God, uh, especially when confronted with the reality of what the just rewards for our sinful actions are. Uh, but then, uh, I'm going to have someone, if someone could turn to Hosea 10.8, I'll bring the mic over to you. We're going to get there in just a minute. I want to uh, highlight something else that's a little interesting. Uh, but, Bud, did you have a question first? Well, some comment. All right, we'll give you the... Uh, this Simon of Cyrene, uh, this is one of the only guys that Luke mentions his name. And of yeah. course, Luke is writing this to early Christians. So I think there's a pretty strong idea that there's recognition here on the Luke communicating to his, yeah. his uh, audience, which is early Christians. But the thing that's ironic, as we were talking about last week, is here Simon of Cyrene takes up Jesus' mm-hmm. cross yes. and follows him. Yes. Which is a, you know, relates directly to Jesus' own words about taking up a cross and following him. And relates to Jesus' own uh, encouragement for the disciples in their Christian life, right? I don't know if encouragement might be the right word, but it's also not a warning. Just the reality of the Christian life is that you must take up your cross daily and follow me. Our, our gospel reading for today is from uh, John chapter 12, where Jesus says, whoever you know, loves his life must lose it, right? Um, and here we see a very literal fulfillment of take up your cross daily and follow me. Um, all right, does someone have Hosea before we... I saw a bunch of people flipping the page. Okay. Hosea 10 verse 8. 10 verse 8. Yeah, I'll have you read that. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So I want to pause just for one second. Here in Hosea, which is what Jesus is quoting here, in Luke, one of the things I think is really interesting, what do the mountains say? Or what do they say to the mountains? To do what? Cover, cover us. Cover us. In Luke 23, Jesus says from the mountains, fall on us. Now the hills in Hosea, what do they say to the hills? Fall on us. Fall on us. And here in Luke 23, uh, the hills are cover us. I think that's interesting because sometimes people point out, well, what, what's the big difference here? The concept is the same. It's not that um, Jesus is misquoting Hosea, but he's referencing back to this, this passage, a, a talk about destruction for Israel's own sin. Um, but it is, I, I find these things sort of interesting. It is interesting whenever you have that sort of um, reversal of verb to noun. 
that you have two verbs and two nouns, you know, cover and fall, mountains and hills, and in Hosea, which is being quoted here, um, it's reversed when compared to the, the Luke text. But the idea is the same, and this is not an idea unfamiliar to the people of Israel. Think about all the Psalms um, where it talks about, the, you know, the Lord is my rock and my refuge. That's going up into a, a, a mountain, you know, where are you kept safe? Not in the middle of a desert, barren wilderness with no protection, right? Look at cities from antiquity. How did they decide where to build fortifications? There were usually a couple of things, but one of the main reasons was geographical structure. So this would have been a concept that was easy for them to understand, um, even if we don't maybe think in this way. But it calls them back to that, that proclamation from the book of Hosea of the, the judgment that will come upon Israel because of their sin. And so... Jesus says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, I think this is kind of interesting because who's the they? This creates a bit of a challenge. So we'll read again starting at 30. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And maybe we'll start with what are the these things? Yeah. Condemning an innocent person, right? Killing God's own son, right? But that still hasn't quite answered. What's the they? And I think there's really three possibilities here. Okay, so the one possibility is that the Romans, yes, those who would attack Jerusalem. If they're going to kill me in this manner when I've done no wrong... You, Israel, who are going to rebel, be rebellious, uh, incite you know, revolutionary sort of things against them, how do you think they're going to treat you? Right? How do you think they're responsible? If, if this is how they treat someone who even Pilate admits he finds no guilt in him, how are they going to treat those um, in whom there is tremendous guilt in the destruction of Jerusalem? So that would keep it right in line with that foretelling of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Yeah, Randy. Okay, it could be all of us. If we, uh, if, yeah, if we do this when things are good. Yeah, so who's a part of that crowd? You have the Romans, and then you also have the God's people, the Jewish people. If this is what they do with the one who came to save them, uh, if this is how ignorant they are, the one who came to save them, what are they going to do without that in their lives, without his promise in their life? And then the third option that is, is put out by some commentators, and I, I have to admit, I, would, I lean towards the, one of those first two being what Jesus is referring to here with the they, as the reference of the they. But a third option, and it's good to have a variety of opinions, is that this could even be a reference to God himself. Now the problem becomes, why did he say they? Well, that, but that if God enacts his wrath as this way on his son, how much more do you think his wrath will be enacted on unrepentant sinners? If he pours out his wrath on his son, what do you think is going to happen to unrepentant sinners? So those are kind of the three main views, or three of the main views, on who the they might be here. Um, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Um, so you can pick of that which you will. Um, but we move on to verse 32. Then there are two others who are criminals. Now remember, in... Uh, both Mark and Matthew, they're referred to as robbers. Likely that probably was the, maybe the more specific charge. But here in Luke, we're going to stay in Luke. They're just listed as criminals. Uh, 
The two criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, what does this maybe remind you of? Think back to our Good Friday readings. You've heard these before. What sort of verses do we usually read on Good Friday that you see enacted here? Think Old Testament, I should say. You're like, well, the gospel reading, yeah, we're reading it. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, if we go to Isaiah 53, I'm going to take a second to to turn there. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one for whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And later on we read that he was counted with the transgressors. And we're going to even see in his burial that he's buried with the wicked. right? And we'll get into what that means and what is meant when we look at Luke 23. But here we see the literal fulfillment of what it means that the the salvation of the Lord, the suffering servant, the one whom God would send for his people, would be considered, counted with the transgressors, the sinners themselves. He's literally placed there right in the midst of them. And one of the things that I'm always struck by uh, is this idea that the criminals were there, one on his left and one on his right. Now, it doesn't occur in the Gospel of Luke, But in both Matthew and Mark, there's an instance where uh, someone asked to be a part of the kingdom of God, specifically. Does anyone remember who who those individuals are? Yeah, James and John. And they said, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your left and sit on your right? And I always think it's it's one of the most interesting things, because Jesus says, you know, You'll be there when I come into my kingdom, but for you to ask to be on my left or my right, one, you don't know what you're asking here. <laughs> you do not know what you just asked to be a part of. But two, this is not for me to decide. It has been appointed. And why I, I think it is interesting is that I believe very strongly that very intentionally these two criminals were intended by God to be there next to, to Jesus. And specifically, when you think about the thief that we're going to get to, that second criminal, I'm going to to have to stop calling him a thief. Criminal. The second criminal that we get to. uh, Think about what being on Jesus' side meant for him on that day. Um, But that's jumping ahead, so we can't get there quite yet. So they they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Uh, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, I'm reminded of the Beatitudes. You know, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, bless those who persecute you. And once more, we we are reminded that Jesus is not just the 
God is not a God of just talk. He's a God of, of doing exactly what he says he'll do and, and what he instructs us to do. That here, these people who are crucifying him, killing him, who have tortured him, what are the words of promise that come out of his mouth? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, some have said that's a, a pretty direct fulfillment, the casting of lots to divide his garments of, of Psalm 22, um, which, of course, is what we think of when, when he says, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, but, uh, you know, you can take of that what you will. I think there's probably a lot of credence to that, but there's plenty of good commentators who have done quite a bit of study on the, the parallels between Psalm 22 and, and the crucifixion accounts. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, Here's what I think is interesting. If you look at this text, just those few words you see, or few verses, you see four different types of mocking that are going to occur. Three directed at Jesus, and then one directed at the, I would say, the unrepentant uh, criminal. Who are, the, or who are the three people very directly, who, or three groups of people that, that mock Jesus here in these verses? We have the rulers, right? the soldiers, and then the criminal. But notice what the second criminal says. Who does he rebuke? Yeah, the first criminal. Uh, And there there is a little ambiguity in the language here, but I think in the context and seeing his response, um, I think it, it is more than fair to say that, yeah, he's looking back at that first criminal and rebuking him that this man now understands his sin, and if you, you see this in how he responds, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? You know, you think about that for a moment and, and where someone's, uh, let's just say, spiritual life would have to be to, to revile, mock, scoff, flog the Son of God. And in, well, let's just say an innocent man, right? And now that innocent man is the Son of God. And they're so blind to it. Um, And what is this criminal's response? Do you not fear God? And I'm reminded of Proverbs where what is the beginning of all wisdom? The fear of the Lord. The fear of God. Um, And we don't know how. I mean, it's through the work of the Holy Spirit, obviously. But we don't know how... Um, what specific thing led this criminal's heart to change. Maybe he saw some of what was happening. Maybe he had known the the messianic prophecies from learning as a child. But whatever it was, in this moment, he recognizes a couple of things that are quite literally (laughs) life-changing. One, he's up there and deservedly so. The other guy, he understands he's up there, but he still... Uh, and that word railed, it's interesting, in 39 there, that word railed is, is blaspheme. He's still blaspheming Jesus. The second criminal, he understands why he's up there. Um, and he also understands 
why Jesus is up there. Because you notice in his response, he doesn't say, remember me when you die. What does he say? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Think about what a profound confession of faith that is. It's one thing for Peter to have a confession of faith while they're at the transfiguration, right? Or for people to marvel when uh, there's miracles being done or or they see Jesus do, do incredible things. When does this criminal confess the majesty of God's Savior for the world? As he's dying, bleeding, tortured, on a cross. When even his own disciples, we're going to read, can only watch from but a distance. Right? And in other Gospels we read, they were, they were scattered. The point being, they weren't right there. They weren't up close. Uh, they didn't see how this was making sense. And yet of all the people in all the scriptures, to understand when Christ comes into his glory, into his kingdom. It is the criminal who hangs there next to him. And this is why I say, you know, sometimes with the familiar text, it's good to do something like this, like tackle it in the middle of, of or I guess the end of July, the middle of summer, not on Good Friday. Um, not that we shouldn't read on Good Friday, we absolutely should. But I, I even went through it, I was like, when's the last time I, I truly actually consider the profound nature of that, that the, the, the one person who seems to understand that Jesus is coming into his kingdom is this guy who's hanging next to him. And what a confession of faith that is. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong or literally improper in the Greek. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, And I am struck by the reality that the grace of God came to that criminal. That grace of God comes to us personally. That when Jesus says, you know, there's someone for whom this this spot to my left or to my right is is appointed, uh, there was a, a, a soul at stake. There was someone who was going to be saved because they hung next to Jesus. Yep. Correct. And so the comment was made, I should have brought you the mic real quick. But yeah, because the Holy Spirit was working through the Word of God literally right next to him. Right? And we're going to see this once more with the centurion. I mean, again, this is another one where we, we, we see this, we read it, we know it, but I, I think we need to sometimes stop and really ponder what is happening here when we, we get to the centurion and Jesus breathes out his last. And in all three synoptic gospels, this centurion makes a strong confession of faith. What is Jesus breathing out? His spirit. I mean, there, there is something... You know, not just profound for us happening, but there's something profoundly happening to the personal individuals who are there uh, on the, the skull, in Greek, the, in the cranium. Right? We're at Golgotha there. And, and so you see it first in, in this criminal, and, 
you know, you, you wonder, and this is where you, you don't want to go too far off the rails, but I think it's fair to just wonder, what sort of path led him, that criminal, to that cross? It probably wasn't a one-time offense. He probably didn't grow up desiring to be on that cross. That second criminal probably had a, a laundry list of regrets and pains and, and traumas and frustrations, maybe even injustices done to him that led him on that path. And yet even that path, the grace of God can work wholly and completely in an instant. <laughs> you know, it's like when uh, Peter w- walks on water, or Jesus walks on water and then instructs Peter, I always say, it's such a great illustration of how God's grace and salvation comes to us. Because when Peter starts to sink, we read in the text that immediately Jesus reached down and rescued him. Yeah. You and I, our natural reaction is let the guy sink for a little bit. Teach him a little lesson. And we'll save him eventually, but we'll let him, you know. But that's not how Jesus works. That's not how God works. Immediately, he reaches down and rescues Peter. Here, we have an instance of the grace of God working like that. That this man's sins were forgiven. That whatever path led him to this point, to being hung next to this innocent guy on a cross, God was working still in that path. And Jesus was hanging there on that cross for the very guy that's hanging next to him. And I think we so easily can just skip over that when it comes to Good Friday, right? Uh, and we forget, like, I think God doesn't care. Remember how he shows his love, how he shows his care individually, personally, um, you know, we, we talk sometimes about Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died for my sins. The very sins I commit this day. The very sins that led that, that, that criminal. And we sometimes lose that personal remembrance. Now, if we make it too personal, we forget that it's not just my sins, but also all of your sins as well. But we shouldn't also just make it so corporate that we forget the true impact and, and personal nature of remembering that Jesus is hanging there on the cross for me, for my sins, for the failures and the mistakes, the times I have mocked and reviled him in thought, word, and deed. All right, I know I saw a hand. I'm going to remember the mic this time so I don't get in trouble. Uh, In my Bible, it says that the centurion said, certainly this man was innocent. Is that, does it say, I I know in one of the Gospels it says he was the Son of God. Yeah, Matthew and Mark, so I was going to bring that up when we get there. But here it only says innocent, which doesn't, he could have been, didn't say much. mm, I I think it's a a recognition, especially when you, you can, again, you read each Gospel as its own Gospel, but you can, with the the witness of the other Gospels, make some pretty... Um, so you can assume that he did recognize Christ. That makes that confession from yes. the other yes. from the other gospels. Yes, and, and um, you know it, it's a little bit like that that criminal there. What, how does he recognize Jesus? I've done something wrong, but this man who who is He's hanging next to me, wrong. he has done nothing improper. He's innocent. Uh, yeah. All right, bud. Uh, I like the focus uh, when Jesus says, with me, you will be in paradise. Yeah. There's something personal there. It's not that they're going to, he's coming into this place and Jesus is off in the distance. Yeah. Jesus is with him. 
Yes. And I think that's also a promise to us oh, oh, uh, individually. Uh, you're going to make me go off on a little tangent, but I'm going to do it anyways, because we, we can in this class, right? Uh, so last weekend, you know, I was, I was in California for my nephew's baptism, which was really cool getting to, to I mean, every baptism is special, but it's especially kind of personally special when it's a, a family member. And so I got to do this at my, my home congregation, St. John's in Orange, and they're focusing on different um, things that, that God said to people. And in this instance, it was um, looking at Joseph. And oftentimes when we look at Joseph and we think what God said to Joseph or how God worked through Joseph, we jump towards the end where we read, uh, you know, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. But what I really liked last weekend um, is that the focus was actually not on those words, but the re repetition of the words throughout the account of Joseph that the Lord was with him. That as he was in a pit, the Lord was with him. That as he was sold into slavery, the Lord was with him. That as he was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife and then thrown into prison, we read again in Genesis, the Lord was with him. Uh, and, and why it, I thought it was such an excellent reminder is, of course, what, what is our, we remember it at Christmas time at least, who does Jesus come to be for us? Emmanuel, God with us. And so you're absolutely right, bud. It's a very profound thing that you will be with me. That you are connected to me. You know, and, and you think of all the, the wonderful uh, verses that we rightfully hold dear. You know, the, that we are the, the branches. He is the vine. That we are connected with him. We are grafted in uh, to his life. We are made co-heirs with him. That on account of Christ, that uh, it is not that we are separately allowed in but that it is with Jesus and Jesus alone, and he is with us. Yeah. Today with me, yeah, today with me, you will be in paradise. And then there's a whole thing that we're not going to get into because we could spend five hours on it and still not necessarily get anywhere, but what does that mean exactly? Paradise, that word paradise. And, you know, there's... A, Paul seems to talk about an intermediary state, maybe, and you go to Philippians 1, I, I desire to be with Jesus. Um, there's the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, so we are not going to dive into all of that this day. If there, I have lots of good resources. If someone would like to spend a long time reading and hearing a lot of very learned people speak more eloquently than I on this subject, I'm happy to do that. Our Concordia Commentary series does a wonderful job of this. Um, but I think what you highlighted, Bud, is what I would ask you to focus on, which is the reality that, I mean, and this is what blows me away. Like, when you stop to think about this criminal, however misspent his youth, his adulthood was, God is with him and with him for eternity. And he got to hear that proclamation in his dying breaths. Right? All right, any other quick comments before we, okay, Ruth and then Dennis. So we'll go here and... I like this. I get my steps in this way. We can just. But he says today. So yes. it was immediate. Yes. And there's. He didn't, all... wasn't going through purgatory or Correct. anything else. It was today. You'll be in paradise with me. And we have that. That's what's comforting to us. It is. And, and again, there's lots of debate on what well, does that. Is that a literal day or is it a day to the individual? You know, in a thousand years is but a yeah. day in the eyes of the Lord. There's an aspect that we don't totally, we can't totally comprehend because it is truly divine. But the comfort is, the promise is pretty right clear. Away. Right away. It's you right are going to think, of, yeah, you're going to know it right away. Right. 
Um, and that's where you start to get in a whole existential question of like, so God is outside of time. He is eternal. The aspect of God being eternal, right? We, we almost struggle to even conceptualize that notion. So I would encourage you to take comfort in the words today. But that's what time stops for us. Yeah, if I knock the microphone off, it doesn't. Um, yeah. For us, then. Well, well, what does that what does that even mean? And I think that's where it's, the comma's made. So does time stop? I mean, that is that, that's again such an existentially difficult question. It's, it's ununderstandable from a human perspective. Yeah. All right, I'm going to take it over to Dennis real quick, and then we're going to keep moving on. I thought we were going to get through uh, all of Luke today, but I, I don't think we are, which is good. We'll, we'll have one more week of Luke, and then. We'll have Galatians starting. Whenever we finish Luke, we're going to start Galatians until September 10th, and then we're going to start Hebrews. So I should announce that at the start. Pastor, you talked about uh, his uh, misspent youth, and I often see this uh, passage kind of as a, 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 you know, a deathbed transformation and see hope in that for those who may have not come to the gospel in li- or early in life. And, and the hope that gives us for our, our loved ones who have not come to Christ. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're spot on, Dennis. I think the emphasis here is what is grace, right? Uh, grace does not have a time component to it, right? Immediately your sins are forgiven and, and is not deserved. And that's what I think is so interesting is the, the thief on the cross gets it. He goes, we're here justly. Like, we're getting what we deserve. This man does not. But that's the great reversal, is that Jesus gets what he absolutely does not deserve so that we could, on account of him, receive what we absolutely don't deserve. But in the complete opposite way. Um, you know, one, a good acronym or understanding is God's riches at Christ's expense, that we receive the, the riches of, of the kingdom of God at the expense of, of his own son. Uh, I was reminded last night, I was talking to someone, we had a mops event, the mothers of preschoolers, and talking to someone about different translations, and so they want to look at John 3.16 in the, in the original Greek, and I'm reminded that it really, and it sounds too wooden, which is why we don't translate it this way necessarily in English, but God so loved the world in this specific way that he sent his only son, or he sent his son, his only one, so that whoever believes in him doesn't perish, but has life eternal. Um, we all know that verse, but I, I love that that emphasis of a in this specific way you know so all right any other comments while i try to fiddle with this mic that doesn't want to stay all right we know it's man's fault if they reject but i guess you have to wonder why jesus chose the one criminal and not the other and i guess you have to wonder if somewhere in this guy's background he hadn't learned about God, the one that was saved. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a really uh, great point, but it's one that I wholeheartedly admit is, is unanswerable to some regard. Why some and not others? Why, why can someone hear the, the proclamation? I, I mean, we talked about the parable of the sower. It was the gospel reading a few uh, weeks ago when I, when I preached, and we talked about it over in the foundations class, and one of the things is, why is it sometimes rocky soil and sometimes good soil? Why is it that we sometimes have been like the, those thorns and allowed the, the riches of the world to, to drown out the good news of Jesus, but then other times been receptive to it? Um, one, we can't credit ourselves. We know that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. 
But why is it that we can't always just be good soil? <laughs> I, we're poor, miserable sinners. And, and we, why does a word at one time, you know, may, this man may have even heard Jesus preach before. And again, we don't, so don't hear me say that's a definitive, but you think about he understands at least something because he understands this is Jesus coming into his kingdom. Right? And so why is it that this time is literally life-changing? Uh, we can only give glory and thanks to God that that's how it happened. I can't give you a logical answer. Well, he finally was in the right state of mind. <laughs> you know, uh, that, That's not how it works. And, and we all, I mean, sadly, know people, right, who we love, who we care about, who we'd love to see take hold of that promise that Christ comes to, to bring to all people. And we rejoice when they do. But there's also the, the part where we continue to keep them in prayer when they may reject it or um, at least have periods of their life where they're, they're uh, seemingly unimpacted by it. Um, so, I, yeah, that's a very roundabout way to say that's a, that you, you need to take that up with God. Um, but give him the glory that we have at different times been in our lives brought to that faith by his work, by the Holy Spirit, by the, the bond of holy baptism. So, all right. We're going to continue on. I'll get the mic back. Don. Now, it was about the sixth hour. And so that's about noon, if you remember how the timing works. And so when they you know, say it's the third hour on Pentecost, right? And Peter says, oh, not even us would be drinking at the third hour. That's because it's 9 a.m., right? And they didn't do mimosa bars in uh, ancient Israel. And so the sixth hour is noon. So it was about noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now we can do the math there till about 3 p.m. And while the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And you're right, Ruth, you pointed out earlier that... Uh, doesn't, I thought he says, surely this is the Son of God. And that is the other two synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark. That is his confession. But here, just like the criminal on the cross, he recognizes that Jesus is not guilty. That he has been uh, declared guilty, not of his own merit, but of our own. Um, and as I mentioned before, you think about what's happening here. Jesus is breathing out his spirit. Um, very likely directly onto this centurion. And I don't think, you know, you don't want to make too much of it, but I don't think you should minimize the reality that, like, Jesus is literally breathing out the Holy Spirit onto this, this centurion. Um, and that's what moves him to that confession of faith. And maybe that helps answer the question with the, the thief on the cross. You know, I, again, it's... It. So, and all the crowds that assembled for the spectacle saw what had taken place, and they had returned home, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance. Stood at a distance. Now, I want us to turn for just a moment to Zechariah 12. 
So we're going to test your knowledge of the minor prophets in just a second. If you go to Zechariah 12, Zechariah is right after Haggai. I know that helps a lot of us, right? So Zechariah 12. Uh, I am always struck by these verses, and we don't always think about them in terms of a, a messianic prophecy, but I think it's almost un, undeniable the way we're, uh, they read. So Zechariah 12, starting at verse 10, uh, and this is God speaking to his people. Uh, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and, a, and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And on that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Riman, and in the plain of Megiddo, and the land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives for themselves, and the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. And on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. And you see the, the physical and uh, historical reality of what that fountain is in Jesus Christ. That we see that happen literally uh, just outside of Jerusalem. And you see that the, the very people of God weep bitterly over him, mourn from him as one that's an only son. But you notice in Zechariah, who pierced him? They did. And, and you have this um, great reminder. And you see this in the Gospel of John, too, with, with Peter's own guilt. You know, when, when Jesus is, is raised from the dead and they're beside the seashore and he asks Peter, do you love me? And, yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? And Peter understands what he's referring back to. Uh, the, the, the shame and the guilt that comes over him. I mean, and you think about our own lives. Now this is where you take it from an understanding of, uh, you know, events that are occurring in the Bible and think about our own lives when we have, uh, in our sin, quite literally put him on that cross. He was pierced for our transgressions, not past transgressions, not our forefathers' transgressions, though those were included. But this is where we sometimes forget the personal nature of this, that he was pierced for our transgressions. The very sins and mistakes and failures and disappointments and, and the, the regrets and the shame and everything that would hold, uh, hold us, bind us, um, keep us as slaves to sin, he in this moment releases us from that. And as we're going to see, not only does he forgive us our sins, but in his resurrection, we are given the gift of the everlasting life. Um, so we're going to keep going on, because I do want to try and get to that before we get too far. And the crowds, uh, let's see, in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, 
And he was a member of the council, that is, the Sanhedrin, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, but he was looking for the kingdom of God. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, I, I think it's a little bit interesting in the Gospel of Luke that it, that phrase right there, he was looking for the kingdom of God. Can anyone else think of this, some individuals early on in Luke that were uh, waiting for the, the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, the restoration of God's people? Yes, Randy got it. Simeon and Anna. Yeah. So you have this idea at the end, who is the good and righteous ones? The ones seeking the kingdom. At the very beginning of Luke, how are Simeon and Anna seen as good and righteous because they are waiting for, seeking, looking for the kingdom. Um, so there's a nice little symmetry there. And now this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it and wrapped it in a linen and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And it was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Now, why is that um, an interesting note? Well, how would one often be buried if they were crucified? Well, first of all, they'd often be left up there for a little bit, but eventually they'd need to bring the body down. What does it mean that this tomb, no one has ever been laid in this tomb? All right, we have a cemetery here. Think of our cemetery for a second. Uh, how do we divvy up the land? Plots, right? And do we put specific, or do we put um, anyone anywhere? No. It's specific for someone specific. Um, just like this tomb. Yes, it's, a, it's for someone specific. Uh, likely Joseph's own maybe family tomb, but this was one, it, it's not a common grave. It's not a, a thief's grave, a burglar's grave, a criminal's grave, which would often have been unmarked and, and likely in an area, if it was like a catacomb or a tomb, uh, not a solo sort of area. Uh, so this is where, you know, so now, fast forward, or rewind back to Isaiah 53, where we just were. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, we read, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And you see, that's why that those, Isaiah 52 and 53 are, are always our, our Good Friday readings that direct a correlation to the, the prophecies of Isaiah, of the Lord's suffering servant, and what Jesus uh, what happens to Jesus himself? And it was the day of preparation, the Sabbath was beginning, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Now why is that last little phrase, those last two verses, why is that important? What's, what's Luke pointing out here? Okay, time is passing, okay. Well, so they did, they did, they saw the grave. They didn't just, they didn't do anything, but who are going to be the ones that go there? The women. 
So they saw where his body is laid. They saw him go into the grave. It was, and you're going to see in the disciples' reactions, and I'm, I don't think we're going to get to it because it's already 1025. But in the disciples' reactions, they think these women are crazy. In Luke, they say these are idle tales, nonsense, tomfoolery. This is something that you, you, you crafted up. And they try to tell the disciples, no, like we went to the very spot we saw him laid, and he was not there. They didn't mix up their directions. You know, Google Maps didn't take them the back way, and they ended up at the wrong spot. They knew exactly where he was, and that's where they go that Easter morning. And he's not there. The other thing to note that I think should not be mitigated is uh, what does one who follows Jesus still do even on even after a really bad day? What commandment do they still follow? The Sabbath, yeah. They honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, you know, that, that don't... <laughs> we have no excuse not to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. The day after Jesus dies, they can remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Um, certainly there shouldn't be any work email that's so important we can't possibly keep our, our Sabbath rest and our, our worship and our focus on God on a day like today. Um, but with that, it, we have five minutes left, and I don't think it's going to work to probably dive into the resurrection in less than five minutes. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal, uh, kind of life-changing, kind of uh, literally earth-shattering. So we are going to stop here for today. That means we will have one more week, it looks like, of Luke before diving into Galatians. But before we wrap up, are there any last comments, questions, um, notes? All right, well then, let's close with a word of prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, uh, we are reminded, especially on this day, as we consider the reality of what your son experienced, uh, the great length that you would go to allow us to know your love and your grace, that in your son, Jesus Christ, you have poured out your wrath, the, the wrath that we rightfully incurred on ourselves because of our sin. And because of his great love for us, he took that to the cross, putting to death our shame and giving us the right to be called children of God. I pray that you would keep us in this promise, keep, the, keep us in this hope, and that we would seek to serve you in all that we do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.